All right. Well, actually, if you if you have your Bibles, turn to turn to the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. You can stay there for just a second. Uh, the book of, of, of Hebrews. Uh, you know, I think as we're as we're doing this, I think there's some some benefits to a to a Christianized calendar. Uh, we would say. I think it it helps to orient our our life, our yearly life, uh, even even our calendar around these sort of significant religious dates. I mean, I mean, the fact that our, that our years are ordered around uh, sort of calendular dates, it, it, it just is inevitable. You know, waypoints sort of track the progress of the year. Oh, I, I, I can't believe it's 4th of July already, or I can't. It's amazing how we, with these dates sort of help us progress. Oh, it's Labor Day. Can I, I mean, can I wear white or not wear white anymore? I never know which one it is when it, when it becomes Labor Day. Uh, so why not instead have our calendars as Christians revolve, not around secular events, but have our years uh, revolve and progress around the religious events that are uh, universally Im- important. Um, so there's a value in that. I, I also think having these days models both the Old Testament and the New Testament where significance events, significant, especially religious events, uh, were how the people uh, kept their, their calendars. So that's kind of that's what we're doing today. Uh, it's what the church has often done, except for some Puritans, but we'll let them off the hook. Uh, but uh, this year, with, with my mind, so as we're, as we're thinking about the resurrection and as we're wanting to commemorate it, as we're feasting and celebrating and rejoicing in these things, what should our thoughts be on? What should we be thinking about? Well, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is so important to our faith. It is so foundational to our religion itself that there are a lot of ways that we could answer that. And in fact, if we go back through various years and various sermons, both Resurrection Day sermons and others, you'll hear us talk about all the things that the Bible says about what to do with Easter, what we should be thinking about the resurrection. But this year, with my mind fixed and our church fixed on the idea of God delivering us from evil, I was drawn to see how Jesus is doing that very thing in the resurrection. So what we're going to see is that as Christ, so as we think about our prayer, as Christ is teaching his disciples to pray, deliver us from evil, the very one teaching them to pray that thing is the one who is already doing that thing for which they're praying. That is, he is already the Father's answer to that prayer, deliver us from evil. That God is answering that prayer and answered that prayer before they even knew to pray it. That as the disciples were obedient throughout their lives to Christ's teaching, through his teaching about prayer, his instructions on prayer, that as his disciples were praying these prayers with him uh, and, and even without him, that even as they were doing that, God was actually answering that prayer as they prayed it. The answer to that prayer was standing next to them. The answer to that prayer, deliver us from evil, was the one teaching them to pray, deliver us from evil. Which is, is monumental, I think, to our understanding of prayer. And how it works and our faith in prayer that in, in many, many ways and in many times, God is already answering some of our prayers before they even come off our lips. That gives us confidence. It gives us confidence in our prayers. It gives us confidence today. It gives us confidence tomorrow. It gives us confidence for all of our prayers. So today, let's see how the resurrection of Christ is God's answer to our cry to be delivered from the evil one. Okay, we're going to see the Bible specifically says, this is what Jesus is doing. He is our deliverance from the evil one. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. 
since we're jumping right into the middle of the book, I'll give you context. You're lucky if we just preach through Hebrews, this would probably take us months to get through this context. Uh, but today I'll just give you a, a quick... So in Hebrews, what's going on is we're talking about uh, the, the superior message that comes from Jesus, that Jesus is the supreme way that God has spoken to his people. You just follow along in chapter one, see that sort of laying out here, just as we're going to get to chapter two, and that we shouldn't neglect this great superior message that comes from Jesus. Uh, and he says, look, if we got in trouble, if you got in trouble for neglecting the message that came from angels, right? If the angels gave you a message in the Old Testament, you neglected that and trouble would come. How much more if we neglect the, 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 the son of God? How much more? Or if we neglect this greater messenger, if we don't devote ourselves to what God has said through through Jesus, a message that was also attested, he says, by those uh, who were there to hear it uh, and God's own witness where God's saying, yeah, listen to this guy, uh, God's witness, it says through signs, wonders, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all the reasons for us to know, okay, what Jesus is saying is true and we should listen to it. And he begins to get into the greatness of Jesus. And he starts talking about how the world, the world, he says, was, was not subjected, hupotasso for the, for the government uh, kids. It, it wasn't subjected uh, to angels, not submitted to angels, but the world was submitted. It was put under the authority of Jesus, that nothing is outside of Jesus' control. But not everything is yet in subjection to Jesus. He says, not everything is yet submitting, even though everything is under his authority, not everything is accepting that authority yet. But Jesus is still crowned. He's crowned at the right hand uh, with glory and honor that Christ reigns and he reigns now, though not everything is yet submitting to his reign. But Jesus' glory, he says, and the, and the culmination came through suffering, specifically the suffering of temptation. And here's where we're already going to begin to see the battle against evil. And that's where we pick up in verse 14. So let's stand together as we read God's word and see what Christ has done in the battle against and deliverance from evil, even through temptation. Beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, we ask today that you would take your word and that you would glorify glorify yourself in the service, that we would make much of you uh, and make much of what we have heard. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Threw you guys off by praying and then saying that. so, so today, I, I wanted to talk about how we're to understand Easter 
as a day of deliverance, a day of deliverance specifically from evil, deliverance from the evil one, and how we're going to see in the resurrection that we as Christians have been delivered from the evil one's use specifically of death. Okay, that in the resurrection, we see the evil one's use of death has been blunted. Okay, so, so there's, there's a, one thing the Bible is very clear on when it comes to Jesus that Hebrews picks up on here in Hebrews chapter 2, which is that Jesus was the Son of God in the flesh. Okay, he was Son of God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, Jesus is not the Father. This is, this is where you get into that fun sort of Trinitarian talk with the children where uh, you get around who, who's dying on Easter and it's, is it the Father, is it the Son, is it just God? Uh, but Jesus is not the Father. He is the Son. He is the divine Son in human flesh, truly God and truly man. Now, there are lots of Bible verses that talk about Jesus coming in the flesh and the importance of understanding that Jesus came in the flesh. So, for example, 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Okay, manifested in the flesh. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Galatians chapter 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Born of woman. Born under the law. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And of course, what we saw here in Hebrews chapter 2. In verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of those same things. So flesh and blood, flesh and blood, flesh, flesh, flesh. In fact, to deny this central truth that Jesus came in the flesh is to show that someone, if someone's teaching that, it's to show that that person, uh, both physical or spiritual, is not from God. And in fact... John tells us that someone who says that is of Antichrist. So John, or 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every So how am I going to know it's the Spirit of God? How do I know or not? He says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. It says the same thing in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. 2 John chapter 1, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. But why? Why did Jesus take on flesh? You have the eternal Son of God, fully divine, and yet He takes on human flesh. He becomes man. Why? 
I mean, if we actually, if you, if you paid attention in those verses, there were several reasons given in those verses to condemn sin in the flesh, Romans 8, to redeem those who are under the law, Galatians chapter 4, to reconcile us, Colossians chapter 1. Those are all reasons that it said in those various verses that Jesus took on flesh. But there is one that is central to what we have been looking at. That Jesus lived and died and rose again to deliver us from the evil one. That's what we see in Hebrews chapter 2. So today, let's look at the resurrection and our deliverance from the evil one in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he says, since the children, okay, so, so, so who are the children? Since the children that God has given him, that, that here, there, that, that this is a quote from Isaiah 8, the children that God has, has given him of the destruction of Israel, yet, yet there's no Israel uh, in this, this, this barren land, there is a, there is a hope that children will spring forth, children that the Lord has given him. So here again, we see it's these believers, these sons, if you look back at verse 10, they, they've been given, uh, to Christ as his children. They've been given to Christ as his seed, his offspring, but who are also his brothers. Well, who are we talking about? We're talking obviously here about Christians, about Christ's disciples, his followers, those who have faith in Christ, those who've been given to Christ, who he is making holy, verse 11. So when he talks about, because since the children, what's he talking about? He's talking about people that he is going to redeem. He's talking about the redeemed. He's talking about his, his sheep. Since these children of God, these sons of Abraham, these true seed of Abraham, since they share in flesh and blood. So since we uh, his children, his brothers, the ones he's making holy. Those are all the descriptions that he used there. Since we share in flesh and blood, so also Christ partook of flesh. Now, there's a word we don't use, partook. Uh, we don't use that often enough. That'd be, we could start in, including it in our vocabularies. Uh, what that means is that Christ is taking these things on. The, the Greek word is the combination of the word with and have. Since the children have these things, he also uh, with have them. He took them as well. He took them on uh, himself. It, sometimes this word is translated share, uh, in, in, like in the ESV a few times, even, even I think in Hebrews. The idea is that since our existence, since we, his children, his brothers, the ones that he is making holy, since our existence is wrapped up in flesh and blood, Quite literally, he also took on flesh and blood. But why? Why did he do that? Why take on flesh and blood? And again, we can think back to all the reasons we mentioned before. We can think back to what we mentioned in, in, in Romans 8, to condemn sin in the flesh. We can think about what we saw in Galatians 4, to redeem those who are under the law. We can think about what we saw in Colossians chapter 1, that by taking on flesh, he reconciles us to one another. He reconciles us to God. All those things. But those aren't the focus here. He tells us why he took on flesh and blood here. What does it say is the reason Christ took on flesh and blood in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14? That through death, notice this, Christ took on flesh to die. Christ 
partook of flesh so that through death. Christ partook of the same things that through death. So when Christ took on flesh, when the Son took on flesh, He did it in order to die. You'll hear these people all the time. They'll talk about things like, oh, I don't know how you can, how you can even stand the cross. Christianity is like, the cross is like, let's not talk about the cross. The cross is like divine child abuse, right? Because God sends His Son to die. That's not what we read in the Bible. That's not what we read Jesus saying He's doing, why He's doing what He's doing. Here we see the Son took on flesh for the purpose of dying. The son didn't take on flesh. He's like, this is going to be awesome. And God's like, I'm not going to tell him, but he's going to die. Uh, the son took on flesh in order to die. It was the son's choice to take on flesh so that he might die for his brothers. So that he might die for his sons. So he might die for his seed, his offspring. So that he might die for those for whom he is making holy. Those he's making holy. It does not say... That because the children have flesh, God sent his son in the flesh. Although that would be true. That's not what it says. What does it say? Because his children, because his brothers had flesh and blood, he took on the same things so that he might die. Christ's death is not accidental. We got to remember. We got to remember this when we're going through Good Friday. We've got to remember this when we're thinking about the cross and we're, and we're trying to think what sort of emotion should we have? How should we think about Jesus? The, the, the Christ's death is not accidental. Christ came in the flesh so that he could not just live in the flesh, not just show us how flesh and blood are supposed to live, which is what some people will say. He came just sort of set this divine example. Although he certainly did that. He, it says here, took on flesh and blood so that he might die in flesh and blood. That's why the, the, very, the very beginning, how is Christ introduced to God's people? What does John say? Behold the lamb. Behold the lamb. And it's not like John was like, look, a lamb, I can't wait to raise it up. And that lamb's going to die of old age someday. The lamb's going to become a sheep. No, when he says behold the lamb, he's saying behold the sacrifice. John knew it, and when John said it, Jesus wasn't like, wait, what? Why'd he call me a lamb? He knows what he came to do. He took on flesh in order that through death, Christ knows what he's coming to do. He's coming to be the sacrifice. But why? Why does he have to die? What does his death accomplish? Why did he come to take on flesh so that through death, what? What are you going to do through death, Jesus? He gives two reasons. Two reasons that he took on flesh so that he might die. Why? Why does he take on flesh and blood? Why does he say, give me flesh and blood so that I can die? The first one's found in verse 14. He himself partook of the same things that through death, one, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So Christ took on flesh. This is why it's important to understand this. So you understand what's going on and how to even think about Jesus. He's doing these things. Christ took on flesh so that he might die and in his death destroy the devil. Now, why did Christ have to die? Christ chose to die to destroy the devil. Now we know, we know that Christ came to destroy the devil. First John chapter three, verse eight, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We know that. In fact, even before his death, his very appearance, the Bible says, his taking on flesh is already the beginning of that judgment of Satan. 
The Holy Spirit's going to testify this to the early church and, and, and tell them, that, look, the, 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 the evil one has been judged already. This is John 16, 11. That when the Holy Spirit comes concerning judgment, he's going he's to tell them that the ruler of this world is judged. See, the devil, the devil was, not, was not powerless. The devil was no, was no paper, paper tiger. Here it says that the devil had the power of death. Now, what does it mean that the devil had the power of death? We need to clear this up because your children are going to go to bed tonight, right? Uh, and we've got to make sure they understand uh, what it means that the devil has the power or, or has the power of death. Now, Satan is, of course, all wrapped up in death throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, at the arrival of sin at creation, what is going to be the result of the fall? Satan, by introducing sin, Satan introduces death into this world. He was the introducer of sin, and that sin brings death. The Bible tells us that Satan is also a murderer from the beginning. It's interesting, the Jews actually called Satan uh, the angel of death. Almost like the grim reaper. Uh, whatever, whatever it means by saying he has the power of death, we know it, it doesn't mean a few things. One, we know it does not mean that Satan is free to kill people as he chooses, okay? That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that since Satan has the power of death, he's just walking around choosing whom he may devour quite literally. Uh, and he's walking around thinking who he may devour, and I'm going to kill that person, that person, that person. We, we know that from Scripture. The book of Job makes it very clear. That Satan cannot do anything without God's permission. Certainly can't kill any of God's image bearers without his permission. And all that is, is true before the coming of Christ and, and the binding of Satan. So he certainly doesn't have that power now. It says Christ took on flesh that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. So when, when the Bible talks about the death of Christ... It speaks not in terms of defeat. It speaks of the death of Christ in terms of victory. And this is where we have to pull ourselves out of our pietistic mindset. We've got to see the death of Christ, not as the defeat of Christ, not as a moment of defeat, not as some dour, you know, sort of messing up of the message. The death of Christ is not defeat. The death of Christ is victory. Christ came to die in order to defeat. John chapter 16, verse 11, tells us, Concerning judgment, the ruler of this world is judged. John chapter 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, that wonderful passage, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, or you could translate it in it, meaning the cross. And the church is called to see this victory, to see this, what Christ is doing as a victory over evil and specifically the evil one. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That proclaiming of the Lord's death is a proclamation of what his death achieved. 
It is not just a giant, woe is me, the Lord has died. It is a hallelujah, Christ has died and done what he said his death would do. Christ is intentionally here, Hebrews tells us, choosing death to use the devil's own tool against him. Christ uses the enemy's own weapon against him. Christ beats Satan with his own blade. He disarms the principality and slays him with his own sword. And he takes on flesh in order to do that very thing. It is not happenstance that Jesus ends up dying and ends up using the enemy's own weapon against him. Christ came to use the enemy's weapon against him. It is what Christ came to do. He came to die and use death against the one who had the power of death. That's why he took on flesh and blood in the first place. And the resurrection proves that he was victorious. The resurrection proved that it worked. I don't know if you've ever tried to do things in a fight that didn't work. Uh, One, why are you fighting? Uh, And two, you know, so I've learned this like... uh, I do jujitsu. No, I, 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 you try to do this thing and you see it on the internet, you see it on Instagram and you're like, I'm going to do that. And you go to do that and the next thing you know, you wake up uh, because it didn't work and now you're unconscious. Uh, and that's, that's, that's not what happened. Jesus, isn't, Jesus isn't, isn't coming and saying, I'm going to slay him and use death. And then if he were still in the grave, it'd be like, well, did it work? The resurrection proves that he was victorious in what he came to do. He came to slay Satan with death, and that's exactly what he accomplished. It proves he was victorious. The victory he proclaimed before his death was indeed won in his death. Christ isn't just proclaiming victory. His resurrection is proving his victory. He's not just saying, I've disarmed death. He proves it. His actions have matched his words. So Jesus, why did he take on flesh and blood? Why did he take on flesh and blood? He took it on to die, but why did he die? He died to destroy uh, the devil. But Jesus takes on flesh and blood, not just to destroy Satan, but also to deliver us. This is not what Jesus is doing by taking on flesh and blood. It's not just a conquest. He's not just coming down to, you know, see the one with the power of, this, uh, of death and he's got this, the power of death and he's wielding it. And, he, you know, Satan, or Jesus taps him on the shoulder. And Satan turns around, he takes the sword and he plunges it back in his, own, in his own guts. It's not what he's doing. It's not just what he's doing. It's not just a conquest. It's also a rescue mission. Okay, it's also a rescue mission. Look back at Hebrews. We'll go back to verse 14 and we'll see this picked up in verse 15. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hopefully when you read that and you saw the evil one and you saw deliverance, you were already thinking about deliver us from evil. You were already thinking about, ooh, this passage sounds a lot like the Lord's Prayer. You were already thinking those things. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy the devil Why did he die? He took on flesh to die. What's he going to do in that death? Destroy the devil and deliver us. Deliver, as it's going to say in verse 16, the offspring of Abraham. So the devil had the power of death. He wielded it and he used it, it says, to invoke fear, to deliver those. So he's using death 
against the devil to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Satan is using his power of death to even when he doesn't kill, right? To create fear. He's using fear, just the fear of death. The power of fear he is wielding over the people and and he and his minions still wield fear. It's still one of the greatest tools that they will. I mean, if listen, if you ever want to do a deep dive into things like the demonic and ghosts and Bigfoot and UFOs, we can have one fun night. Uh, and you're already going, now what? Uh, they still use fear in the people. It's still one of their weapons to use against the pagan world. And one fear in particular that the devil uses is the fear of death. In Psalm 23, the psalmist talks about what? The shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, death casts a fearsome shadow. Now, how do men, how do we fear death? We fear death in many ways. There are many reasons and many ways that we fear death. We fear the unknown. We fear the, the darkness of the grave, the darkness of it all. We fear facing God. We fear the judgment that we know we deserve. But that fear is blunted for the believer. Why? Why is the believer not as afraid as the rest of the world? Because we've been delivered from those fears. Christ is clear to his followers here. You don't need to fear death anymore. And he's clear, he's clear throughout scripture about it. Why do we not need to fear death? He tells his disciples over and over, you don't need to fear death. Why? Because of me. Because of me. Because of what I'm doing. Because of what I came here to do. And again, that doesn't make any sense if he doesn't already know that he's taking on flesh and blood in order to die. He knows he has destroyed the enemy. Now, I want you to know that word destroyed, that can sometimes be confused. Like, wait, is the devil destroyed yet? How does that word, that word destroyed there uh, in verse 14 is, is not the word that means like our enemy has been executed. It's a different word than that. It's, it's a word uh, that's actually a combination of the word against and work. He is against Satan's work. He's making it, uh, sometimes it'll be translated useless, powerless. Uh, basically, he's destroying his ability to use that weapon. It's, it's to cause something to be unproductive, to be against its work. Christ, in other words, has made Satan powerless. He has essentially destroyed his power. Satan is still here. The evil one is still around, but his teeth are all busted out. His power has been taken from him. And, and one of those weapons was the use of fear. So we, as Christians, we fear him no more. We've been delivered from fear. Well, how have we been delivered from fear? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.10 is that we've been delivered from fear because Christ has abolished death. Now, that's the, if you see the word abolish, that's the same word that we translated destroyed of the devil in, in Hebrew. So you can see there the, the connection of, of, of making it useless, of getting rid of it, of making it, making it powerless. Of course, people still die, right? People still die. But death has been abolished. Christ has taken away the power that death had over us. So we don't, we don't fear it anymore. In fact, what does Jesus say 
to Martha at the death of Lazarus in, in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You live and believe in Jesus and you will never die. And what's, what's interesting is that's not even new. When he says this to Martha, it's not even something new. He had said this to the disciples already when he's talking about the bread of life in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 50, he says, This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Or John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But Jesus has been saying this his entire ministry. He's been saying it his entire life. Why? Because this is what he came to do. This is what he took on flesh to do, was to destroy the devil and to deliver us. We'd been kept bound by that fear of death. Because of Christ, now, instead of death, what do we get? We get eternal life. Paul mentions flesh and blood, not just here in Hebrews, but also in 1 Corinthians 15. He mentions flesh and blood and victory over death in 1 Corinthians 15. Where he talks about what flesh and blood has to do and has to put on this immortality because flesh and blood is, by definition, mortal, diable. That's not a word, but it should be. But what does it say in verse uh, 54 of 1 Corinthians 15? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is the law. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In Christ, death is swallowed up. Like we saw Paul say to Timothy, death has been abolished. Death has no more sting for us because of Christ. Because Christ came to live and die and proved what he did in the resurrection. Christ's death is not a defeat. It is a victory. So when we're thinking about his death and his resurrection, we must recognize the victory that is taking place both against our enemy and for us. The entirety of the life of Christ. Not just, and see, this is the danger is that we just add the victory part to the resurrection. It was all victory. It was all conquest. It was all rescue. It was all active, not just passive. Christ's death is, is not, he's not teaching us, it's not just the acquiescence of a weakling. It's the attack of a warrior. Christ's death is not, he's not dying because he's winsome. He's dying because he's the one true king. Christ's death is not just a laying down, it is a picking up. He takes on flesh and blood so that he might deliver flesh and blood. And then he tells us what? Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you will live. Deliver us from evil? He has. He has. For the flesh and blood that once meant death now bring you life. And we proclaim that. And we remember that. And we rejoice in that until he comes. What does the Bible say? Come, 
and see where he lay. Take and eat and be delivered from evil. So how can we take this Easter victory of of Christ, this resurrection victory, and use it in our lives? Let me give you a few ways to take this and use it in your your life. uh, Besides just thinking about, okay, I've got to make sure that I see the resurrection and the life of Christ, not as just some, you know, sort of downhill that in the end is is actually a ha-ha, a ha-ha moment of, hey, he's actually winning. That it's all conquest. It's all victory. uh, It's all the king coming to slay the enemy. He puts on flesh and blood in order to slay the enemy. Uh, One, celebrate the redemption of your flesh and blood. Celebrate the redemption of, what are we? We are flesh and blood. And that flesh and blood was once just tied to the reality of death for us. But now, flesh and blood are symbols, not of our death, but of life. They tie you not to the reality of death, but to the certainty of life. We will go through our lives in bodies of flesh and blood. And instead of those dwindling bodies that we're in being constant reminders of what awaits us to our doom, when you look at your body now and you see, I am but flesh and blood, we now know these are constant reminders, not of what awaits us for our doom, but constant reminders of what awaits us for our joy. Because we know what happened to flesh and blood in Christ. We know what's happened because our Savior has put on flesh and blood so that he might destroy the one who had the power of death and deliver those who through fear of death were kept captive to lifelong slavery. You are flesh and blood. Never forget that. I mean, look at your skin. Look at your hands. Now, underneath that, those those thin and, and, and for many thinning layers of flesh sit a rich supply of blood coursing through our veins. But that flesh and blood that once meant death have been redeemed. That flesh and blood, they're not just markers of our death. They are the means by which Christ brought you life. He unveiled himself in flesh. He filled himself with blood. So that those things that once meant our death could be the very things that bring us life. So see your hands, see your side, see your feet, flesh and blood mingled in a body that no longer fears the grave, but that has been rescued from it. So see the redemption of your flesh and blood and celebrate that redemption next. Take the battle to evil. Christ didn't just become flesh and blood. He became flesh and blood as an act of war. He took on flesh and blood so that he might use death to destroy our enemy. So in your life, quit simply fighting defensive fights. Learn from your, learn from your master and take the battle to evil. Destroy the works of the devil in your life. You have a faithful high priest who is there to help you when you're tempted. When you are stretched, use that faithful high priest. And use Christ, not just to wage a defensive war against evil, but to go on the offensive. Satan has been destroyed. Act like it. He is no longer your master, so quit giving him so much power over you, a power that he does not have. Quit, let me cast off those broken shackles. Quit quit taking those chains and draping them back over your shoulders. You've been set free. 
So what does that mean to go on the offensive? What I mean is don't just try to not be bad. Be good. Don't just try to not be unholy. Be holy. Don't just try to not be a bad wife. Be a great one. Don't just try to not be a bad dad. I don't want to, I don't want to be a bad dad. Don't just let, that's a defensive battle. Go on the offensive. Be a great dad. How can I be a great dad? Because flesh and blood has been redeemed in Jesus Christ. You've been set free. And those things, be those things so that your children will be even greater at those things. Take them on so that you can break the bad examples that you lived under and set good examples that your children can build off of. Have you made mistakes as parents? Are you making mistakes as parents? Fine. Teach your kids that those were or are mistakes, some of which you still might be living in, and say, I did this, and these are the repercussions, and you see what we're in. Don't do what we did and where we're stuck at. Be good. Be great. Build beyond us. Don't do this. Model it. Take on the tools that Satan used against you and redeem those in your life for generations to come. You were under bad parents. Good. Redeem that cursed label in the lives of your children. Let the label that Satan used of broken flesh and blood create a new redeemed one from the grave by the flesh and blood of Christ at work in your life. Because if you don't, you'll just keep repeating the same mistakes you've been making. And your children will keep repeating them too. And instead of taking on flesh and blood to destroy the works, all we'll be doing is trying to defend what we've got. We don't just want to be conservatives in the progress of the kingdom. This is the one place you can be progressive. Take the battle to the enemy. Take the fight to him. Take the battle to your sin and redeem those things that were once a markers of death in your life, like flesh and blood. And lastly, I would say, do not make yourself or let yourself fear death. Christian, do not diminish the resurrection every other day in your life by letting yourself, or I would even say making yourself fear death. Now, why do I say that? Because if death has no more power and you're giving it power, you are the one making yourself fear death. There's no actual power in death that you should be afraid of. There's no reason for you to be afraid. You're being unreasonable in your fear. So I say, make yourself or let yourself because Christ's work is real and the fear of death, he says, has been destroyed. So if Christ says he has set free those who had a fear of death and you keep taking on the fear of death, then what you're doing is you're diminishing the work of Christ. Christ's death and resurrection, Christ's enfleshment delivered us from the fear of death. How could we fall back into it? What reasons could we have to run back to the fear that once enslaved us? We like to talk about those sorts of things and think of uh, like with Romans 6 and think just of like falling back into sin. Well, let me tell you, this is what you're doing when you, when you begin to continue to be afraid of death. You're falling back into that thing you were set free from. May it never be. May it never be. When you begin to fear death, know that that fear is neither rational nor religious. In fact, it is irrational and irreligious. What you're doing is you're listening, uh, you're listening to the whisperings of the enemy who's calling out to you through broken teeth. 
you're listening to a slack-jawed serpent. And you're letting him fool you. You're letting him. You're making yourself be fool of him because he has no real power. You are giving him that power. Trust your king. He lived and died so you might live forever. Do you believe that? Then take and eat and live. Live forever.